Good morning. Well, the world sure has changed, completely changed. I think back to what life was like nine months ago or even six months ago, and it's hard to even remember what it was like. So thoroughly has the world changed around us. And as I think of the future, it's hard to imagine life ever going back to the way it was. Irrevocably changed has the world. I'm talking, of course, about the fact that my family recently got a puppy. (laughs) Did you think I was talking about the pandemic? (laughs) Or maybe the newly reignited racial tensions around us, protests, riots. Or perhaps you thought I was referring to the ever-accelerating political scene that will reach its zenith Tuesday night. One can hope. Certainly people are on edge about these things, but no, I was just talking about my puppy. Lots of needs, lots of training, lots of cleaning. It's clear that little Wilson has changed my life for the next decade, maybe more, I hope more. Now to be clear, our public current health emergency, all matters of justice, and of course the political stage are very important matters in this world. They're very sober and I take them very seriously. But are they really peculiar? Have we not faced illnesses, turmoil, and politics before? Will we not face them again? More importantly, what does the Lord say? What does the scripture have for us to orient our minds at times like these? To put it another way, we live in an age when information is coming at us fast filled with major world-altering headlines that give us the impression that life is coming apart at the seams, make us feel small and helpless. I haven't even said anything about unemployment, hurricanes, murder hornets, and wildfires. 46,000 wildfires in America this year alone. All these things grab the headlines and at least bewilder us, if not scare us. So what can anchor our souls in such stormy gales. Well, praise God, the scriptures have a word for us today in Psalm 146. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 146. In this Psalm, which we just read responsively, much like ancient Israel would have in their festivals and in their temple worship, and then we sang as well, we will see that there is a vision for life, the universe, and everything that can give us interpretive glasses, as it were, to see the world with wisdom and hope. And so here's what we'll see. We'll see in this psalm that the Lord is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord is eternal. Secondly, that the Lord gets things done. The Lord gets things done. The Lord is a doer, creator, maker, and succeeder, the things he sets his hands to. And number three, that to praise the Lord is to find the very meaning of life. The Lord is eternal. The Lord gets things done. And to praise the Lord is to find the very meaning of life. So let's start actually in verse three. We'll come back to verses one and two in a bit, but we start with verse three. And we start with the negative. We start with the wrong approach. 
Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that day, his plans perish. This is the negative. We are perennially, perennially tempted, all people are, all people are, to see the world's troubles and instinctively look to the human leaders among us. Surely they are strong. Surely they have the resources. Surely they have the competence. That's why they're in those leadership positions. And the resources and the ability to help us too. But this psalm gives us two reasons to react against that instinct. Do you see them there? In verse 3, the first one is that in worldly leaders, there is no salvation. They are not as strong and able as they self-present. It turns out they can't save. And the truth is, history is simply littered with the broken dreams of political illusions all along the highway of history. The second is in verse 4. Whatever plans they do have are necessarily short-lived, for they will die. They all die. And their great platforms go with them. So when we put our hope in worldly leaders, regardless of how charismatic or effective they appear, we find ourselves longing for that which cannot satisfy and cannot last. Put not your trust in princes. That's an injunction. That's a command that the Lord has for us. Don't do that. Don't put your heart in those places, in that stock. Uh, 16 years ago, I was a high school teacher at a school called Washington Christian Academy, just north of Washington, D.C. And I had 16, 17-year-olds, some of them were 18-year-old uh, young men and women. And despite their age, most of them younger than 18, they were especially precocious in the area of politics. They took government classes, history classes, and they were just insatiably curious about who the new teacher was voting for. This was the 2000, uh, would have been now 2004, John Kerry, George W. Bush race. Some of you will remember that. And they were just dying to know. Uh, Mr. P, who are you voting for? Who are you voting for? And I didn't want to answer because I, because I was a theology teacher. And people just take their politics and their theology and seem to collapse them into each other. And so regardless of what I had said, would have created stereotypes in their minds that would have harmed my theological education. I was trying to give them the rest of the year. So I simply said to them when they asked, donkeys live a long time. That's what I said. I said, I said, who are you voting for, Mr. P? I said, donkeys live a long time. And they had to be satisfied with that uh, diversion uh, until at least the next day and the next week. And they would keep coming back to me. Who are you voting for? Dying to know, dying to know. Who are you voting for? And I would simply say, donkeys live a long time. And one time, one student just nodded and smiled at me. And I knew that he had read George Orwell's 1956, Animal Farm. Have you read Animal Farm? It's a short book. It's, a, it's worth a read. And in the book Animal Farm, there's a farm owner. His name is Mr. Jones, and he owns the Manor Farm. 
And he's particularly oppressive of all of his animals who, of course, do all the hard work in the fields. Now, I imagine every farm animal thinks the farmer is oppressive to them, but at Anner Farm in particular, there was an uprising. There was a speech given by one of, the, one of the pigs the night before he died that if you can take over the farm and you can throw off the chains of Mr. Jones, how much better your life will be. And you can turn this farm into a kind of utopia for animals if you just throw off the shackles of Mr. Jones. And then the next day, there was a revolution. Mr. Jones and his, his uh, farmhands ran away, and the animals were in charge. It was a new day on Manor Farm, now called Animal Farm. And the animals are in charge, and all animals are equal on Animal Farm. But the pigs had a particular skill for politics. And they were able to rise up to become the leadership class. Yet, within the leadership class, there were two vying for ascendancy, right? So two pigs, one named Napoleon, one named Snowball, who are battling against each other to win the hearts and the role of leadership from among the other animals. And so that's where we pick up. The whole farm was deeply divided on the subject of the windmill. Snowball did not deny that to build it would be a difficult business. Stone would have to be carried and built up into the walls. Then the sails would have to be made, and after that, there would be need for dynamos and cables. How these were to be procured, Snowball didn't say. But he maintained that it could be done in a year. And thereafter, he declared so much labor would be saved that the animals would only need to work three days a week. Now that's a winning platform. If you can promise the electorate that you'll only have to work three days, you're going to get some votes. But Napoleon, on the other hand, argued that the great need of the moment was to increase food production. And if they wasted time on the windmill, they would all starve to death. Fear is another great motivator for getting votes. The animals formed themselves into two factions. One under the slogan, vote for Snowball in the three-day week. And the other, vote for Napoleon in the full manger. Benjamin the donkey was the only animal who did not side with either faction. He refused to believe either that food would become more plentiful or that the windmill would save work. Windmill or no windmill, he said, life would go on as it had always gone on, that is, badly. Well, it turns out Napoleon was able to force his way into that leadership position and run Snowball off the farm. At which point, Napoleon said, well, the windmill was actually always my idea. So let's build the windmill. By the autumn, the animals were tired but happy. They had had a hard year, and after the sale of part of the hay and the corn, no, no inclination where the money for that went, the stores of food for the winter were none too plentiful. But the windmill compensated for everything. It was almost half built now. After the harvest, there was a stretch of clear, dry weather, and the animals toiled harder than ever, thinking it well worthwhile to plod to and fro all day with blocks of stone, and by doing so, they could raise the walls another foot. So far from taking away work, the windmill added work. Boxer, the horse, would even go out late at night and work for an hour or two on his own by the light of the harvest moon. 
In their spare moments, the animals would walk round and round the half-finished mill, admiring the strength and the perpendicularity of the walls, and marveling at how they would ever been able to build anything so imposing. Half a windmill. Only old Benjamin refused to grow enthusiastic about the windmill, though, as usual, he would utter nothing beyond the cryptic remark that donkeys live a long time. See, uh, when Benjamin had seen one political slogan after another, one idea come and another idea go, and life for him just continued as ever. You see, the longer you live, the more you understand the truth of Psalm 146 with more clarity. The political power brokers of the world never quite deliver on those grandiose campaign vows. And they are soon enough supplanted by the next generation of political upstarts, yet with the same old song and dance. And round and round we go. But look at the next verse in Psalm 146. Look at verse 5. Here now the Lord will be compared to all of this, proving himself to be the exact opposite. That he is eternal, He doesn't die and take his plans with him to the grave. He is eternal and he gets things done. Indeed, in the Lord, there is salvation. So if the princes of the world have no salvation and take their plans with them to the grave, the Lord is a savior and his plans never tire and never die. Let's take a look. Verse five, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. You see, just on the top level of all things, the Lord God is the creator, maker, and sustainer of all that is. The sun comes up in the morning because the Lord calls it forth every day. The rains fall because the Lord gives rain to the earth. The sea and the land produce Uh, food and vegetation because the Lord sovereignly creates this world and gives it to us for our sustenance. Yet beyond that, you can get down into the details too. Look at verses 7 and following. What else does the Lord do? What's on the Lord's agenda? Verse 7, the Lord executes justice for the oppressed. The Lord gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now that's a lot. That's a lot. And you ever notice when you read these things that these are the exact same things the world is crying out for right now. Look again at verse 7. He executes justice. Heard much about justice lately? He cares for the poor. Verse 7, he even has an agenda for prison reform. Verse 8, he's into health care, healing the eyes of the blind. Verse 9, his issues of immigration, watching over sojourners. 
Widows and fatherless, those are broken families. And then again, justice, and particularly judging the wicked, bringing people to justice. I wonder how many people know that this is what the Lord is about, that this is what's on the Lord's agenda, that this is the vision for human thriving that Yahweh the Creator has for the earth. And he's been about these things for thousands of years, long before they ever became flashpoints and talking points for getting votes. But how does he do these things? How does he care for widows and the fatherless? How does he feed the hungry? Does food just float down from heaven? Oh, that happened once with Moses, but that's not what happens all the time, right? How does he, how does he open the eyes of the blind? How does he lift up those who are bowed down? Magic from above? Miracles all the time? No. He does these things through his people. He does these things through the church. The Lord has glad volunteers who serve him in these capacities the world over. You see, the church is a new humanity under Christ, under King Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, now called to be stewards and priests throughout the world. And so we demonstrate these godly characteristics among ourselves, thereby bringing these realities to, uh, to existence within the community of the redeemed, and then equally serve as a billboard to the rest of the world, that if you want these sort of things, you want justice, you want prisoners uh, cared for, you want the Lord to watch over, you want uh, widows and orphans to be cared for, and so forth. You want the hungry to be fed. This is the society, the society of Christians where that's happening. Because King Jesus has taught us how to live merciful and meek lives with each other. And if this is what the world desires, if these are the issues that the world has, I'm just dying to see somebody either on the news or on Twitter or on Facebook say, well, just join the church. <laughs> you understand? And we should not expect, we should not expect unregenerate people to desire the characteristics of the Lord, nor systems built on secular foundations, that is to say, God-less foundations, to produce the sort of things that only God can produce through his people. And so it's true that everywhere Christianity has been entrenched, it has left behind schools, universities, libraries, Hospitals, orphanages, shelters, food pantries, soup kitchens, prison reform, democracy, and innovation. In fact, one fascinating third century document called the Didascalia describes the duty of bishops as, quote, educating orphans, aiding widows, the purchase of food and firewood for the destitute, and to be on the lookout for injustice and the abuse of slaves. In 251, so before Constantine came to power and in, a, and in a context of great persecution in Rome, there were 1,500 dependents on the church's role. So 1,500 people 
that the church was caring for in that city alone. And so local churches uh, were kept storehouses of provisions of food, uh, oil, wine, and clothing. And these practices continue today. A small story from my own, my own life when I graduated from college. I moved to Colorado and I worked in a, my office for a juvenile offender ministry. It was in a place called Church on the Outside. And Church on the Outside was an offshoot of a Prison Fellowship. Because Prison Fellowship, uh, a ministry to uh, people incarcerated, ran Church on the Inside. Right? That was called the Inside when you, were, when you were in jail. And so Church on the Outside was a ministry to the wives and the children of the inmates during that season to care for them. They are the widows, uh, functional widows and current fatherless. And then also to care for inmates as they transition back into society as they desire to walk with Christ on the outs. And even today, uh, this church also has a local food outreach to the people of this community. And so it's the church, it's the church that's the preserving force in the world. I wonder if when you see problems in the world, your first thought isn't towards the secular political arena or towards the role of the church to be salt and light, to care for its own in the first instinct because we are a polis unto ourselves with a king over us Jesus alone, and then equally as an example to the rest of the world of what life is like under this king of kings. It's how Israel was supposed to live in the books of Moses. You can read on, on many, many instances where Israel is instructed to care for the widow and the fatherless and the sojourners among them, because when the sojourners came, they would see how great it is to live under the rule and reign and grace of Yahweh the creator. And so in the same way, the church lives under the reign and rule of our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we live in a way of unity and peace and mutually care for one another in all these issues, we serve as a billboard to the world that without God, without Christ, without the spirit, you will continue to get divisions and strife. You'll just, that will never stop. But under the lordship of Christ, living out the law of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, you get a community like this. Evangelism, in other words, is the most effective tool to change the world. And notice verse 5 again. Notice verse 5. Verse 5 says, if you put not your trust in princes and instead put your hope in the God of Jacob, the Lord God, verse five, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. You will enjoy the good life. But more than just actually being blessed, you'll also find the meaning of life. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Psalm 146 is the first of what we call the hallelujah finale. The hallelujah finale is the last five books, the last five psalms in the book of Psalms. So if you take all the psalms together, one through 150, we call that the Psalter. And the last five psalms are called the hallelujah finale. And here's why. Look again at verses one and two. 
Hallelujah, it's Hebrew, it means praise the Lord. It means praise the Lord. So every time you see praise the Lord, you're reading hallelujah. And anytime you read hallelujah, you're reading praise the Lord in English. So look at verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And then look at the very last verse of the psalm. Psalm verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So Psalm 146 begins with praise the Lord and ends with praise the Lord. And the next four psalms do the exact same thing. So go ahead and take a look. Take a look at Psalm 147, 148, 49, and 50. The first words and the last words of each psalm. And there you'll see why it's called the hallelujah finale. Every psalm begins and ends with hallelujah. 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. Look at Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing praise to the Lord, a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. And then Psalm 150 is the finale to the finale. It just comes at you with praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord over and over again. So let's read all of it. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So why? Why does the Psalter end with all this praise, of which Psalm 146 leads us into it. Why that? Well, it's not like the conclusion to a great musical set. You know, you've got to end on a high note. But rather, the book of Psalms is actually telling a story. The whole Psalter, from the first Psalm to the last, is telling you a narrative. So keep your finger here in Psalm 146 or wherever you are right now and turn all the way back to Psalm 1. Turn all the way back to Psalm 1 and take a look at what we find there. Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Jump down to verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on, he law, and on his law he meditates day and night. Then verse 3, you're taken into a garden. And metaphors and comparisons are being made there, because he is like a tree planted by streams of water that brings forth fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And on goes the psalm. Now think for a moment. Think for a moment. Where else do we see a man in a garden setting with trees and rivers and fruit and the context is day and night and he's given a law. It's Adam. It's obviously Adam. 
Psalm 1 is picturing what the world was like and what the world could have remained like had Adam not plunged us all into the curse of sin and death. Sin and death. And so Psalm 2 verse 1 begins with this question. Why do the nations rage? They rage against God and against his anointed. Well, we've moved pretty quickly, haven't we, from this pristine garden setting with the original man and the word of God to the raging of the nations, fighting against the Lord God. And so the Psalms, the Psalter continues and promotes two figures, two characters. The first is David. David rises to the throne. And the Lord's answer to the rage of the nations and the sin of humanity is if I could just put David to rule over them, then David will teach them what is righteousness, what is justice, what does it look like again to meditate on the law day and night and to live in fellowship with God and with each other again on the earth. And the second character is the son of David. Maybe David can't accomplish that great work. Because David also has his own problems. But what if from the family of David, another son would come forth? Another son who will rule the nations better than David. Perfect justice, perfect righteousness before the Lord. Never violating any of the law of God, even as David did. Then what would happen? Then the nations will be subdued. People will turn back to God. People will live again, even start to live again in that setting of relationship with God under his word and at peace with each other. And that's the trajectory of the Psalms. And so when you get to the end of the Psalms, the last five Psalms, they're placed there as a prediction of the future. That if this son of David can come and rule in this way over all peoples, then the whole creation will burst forth with hallelujah. And that everything that has breath, the very last verse of the Psalms, will praise the Lord. Well, it's back in Genesis 1 and 2 where the Lord filled everything animate with breath. And so I conclude that the meaning of history, and you live in history, and so therefore the meaning of your life is to fulfill that original creational goal, lost by sin, restored by the son of David, so that you can attain to your highest human potential, a life praiseworthy to God. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus is presented on nearly every page as the son of David. Jesus Christ is that great son who lived a perfect, sinless life. And so when he died, he didn't die for his own sins. He died to atone for the sins of his people. And then he was raised back to life to send forth the Holy Spirit to create in his people a new humanity who might now live according to his teachings. The Sermon on the Mount, his knowledge of the Psalms, the Ten Commandments. You understand? Jesus saves you from your sins and then gives you the Holy Spirit so you can live in a new way. 
And so therefore, it's the church that is this new humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit that is the vanguard of a new creation, a new world that rebounds with praise to the creator with no opposition from sin, no opposition from Satan coming down the line has now broken into history in the people of God. We are emissaries, as it were, from the future to show people today that under the kingship of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, here's what a community can look like with justice, caring for the hungry, help for prisoners, healing, lifting up those who are bowed down, watching over foreigners, caring for widows and orphans, and judging rightly what is good and what is wicked. And I would argue that the Republican and Democratic, Democratic platforms are just too small to contain this vision of a new creation and a new humanity. So whatever the current Napoleon and Snowball are promising or threatening, day after tomorrow, one of them will be elected, I think. Right? Don't be too exuberant if your candidate wins. Because this psalm is telling you, you never put your trust in him anyway. And don't be too crestfallen if your candidate loses. Because it's the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting. It's King Jesus who was killed and raised again to live forevermore. Now you live in a great country where you've been invited to participate in the political system, which is unheard of in most of history and around the globe. And mainly that's by voting. So, so vote. Go vote on Tuesday. If you've already voted, don't try to vote again. That's not, that's, that's not allowed around here. I came from Chicago, but around here it's frowned upon. But remember, just remember that despite what you see in our saturated, media-saturated culture, the political stage is not the greatest stage. The greatest stage is the advancement of the gospel to change people's lives and hearts and to create this new humanity gathered together in places called local churches. So I agree the world has changed, but it's not because of puppies or pandemics. It's because Jesus Christ was raised to life. The resurrection of the man Jesus Christ is the fulcrum on which all other history hangs and is the decision point for all people. All must hear the message of his death and resurrection and reject or accept. To continue to rage against Yahweh and his Messiah or to kiss the son and to become a disciple. And that's our message for the world. And that's what I hope will stay your heart this week and forever. Let's pray. As always, Father, we bow before you in humility because of how much you've given us. Life, breath, the good things of this world, and then also to forgive us our sins in Christ Jesus. To gift us with the Holy Spirit who makes us new men and women 
writes your law on our hearts and gathers us together in a genuine loving community. And I pray, Lord, for this congregation, for Christians across the land, Lord, that we would learn to put not our trust in princes, but that we would place our hope in the Lord, that our help would be the God of Jacob, for he will reign forever and ever to all generations. So we pray in his son's name, amen.